Hey everyone, before the episode starts, I have one quick announcement and then I just want to touch on something else real quick. So the announcement is that there might not be an episode for next week. Um, We are hoping to get an episode out the following week, but if not, we'll keep you posted on our social medias. And next, it looks like I am falling asleep in this video. It is because I work third shift and I was up really long and me and Mark wanted to record this last episode before he left so that is the reason why you guys see me fighting for my life to keep my eyes open um yeah but other than that i hope you guys enjoy this episode and we hope to see you again soon Hello, everyone, and welcome to Uncle Mark's Attic. Everyone is now cordially invited to join co-host Zach and me, Uncle Mark, as we explore a variety of interesting topics from the fields of paranormal activities, conspiracy theories, unsolved mysteries and disappearances, and lots more. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Uncle Mark's Attic. Feel free to reach out to us and contact us with your questions and suggested topics. We would love to hear from you. So come on into the attic with us now as we go exploring and find out what mysteries we discover today. So, today's episode is on missing children, and it's kind of going to be more of a a dark and essentially like a depressing episode. So, we just want to give you that heads up uh, and and warning ahead of time that today will not be more of like a a joking matter. We are kind of going to take this a little bit more serious. And um, so, the first case that we have is a a more recent case, and the second case that we have is going to be a case from the 1930s. So, with that being said, um, I'm going to jump right into this. Okay. So, the first case is Casey Hathaway, which happened in 2019 in North Carolina. So, on January 22nd in 2019... Three-year-old Casey Hathaway was outside his grandmother's backyard at her home in Ernal, North Carolina, playing with some other children. When the other kids went back into the house, Casey stayed outside around 1.45 p.m. Family members then went out looking for Casey. He had disappeared. This is a heavily wooded area, so the family members searched for 45 minutes uh, and then called the police when they could not find him. This was the beginning of a massive massive search for the boy. Over 100 searchers, including the sheriff and deputies, state investigators, FBI, and United States Marine Corps volunteers from nearby Camp Lejeune. 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 Okay. Uh, A helicopter with FLIR, uh, forward-looking infrared, was used, and even some drones. Uh, Dogs were brought in to track the scent of Casey. So despite all of this manpower and equipment, the boy remained missing for over two days and two nights, which is a very long time, especially if you're a concerned mother, father, family member of this young man. Um, According to the sheriff, the wooded uh, area could be treacherous, uh, sinkholes, marshy areas. Uh, So now we get into the first night. Uh, The temperature dropped to around 20 degrees per Casey's family members. 
Uh, he was only wearing light clothes, so he was not dressed in the regular winter clothes that someone would want to be in in this kind of weather. Uh, so now we're going to kind of go into the second night and, and give a little bit of details about the second night. Uh, two inches of rain fell. Conditions were so bad, the searchers were recalled so they would not get injured. Um, this is a big concern, especially if the researchers or the searchers are getting recalled to not get injured, where this little boy is still outside in the rain. And you know what I mean? The main concern is finding this young man, young boy, whatever you want to call him. He's obviously a young boy. So on the morning of the third day, a woman walking her dog in the woods heard what sounded like a boy calling for his mother. Um, And as any person with, you know what I mean, any type of morals, she notified the sheriff's office. Yeah, the searchers, once they got this word from this lady, uh, she was uh, a neighbor, and she certainly knew the family. She knew Casey's family, and she knew all about what was going on and was aware of the search. So once they got the word, they immediately began gathering all the searchers again to come back to those grounds and to resume the search. What happened was uh, one of the searchers, he was an EMS captain, he actually found Casey. It didn't take them very long before they actually found Casey. He was in a thicket of uh, thorn bushes only about 40 to 50 yards away from the grandmother's house. Uh, He was a bit lethargic after being out in that cold in the rain for two whole days. And then this is the morning of the, this is the morning of the third day really of the, of the, of the search. Uh, He was taken to the hospital right away. He did have some scratches. He was certainly wet, especially after a night of two inches of rain. Um, Remember he'd had no food or water for two days now um, when he was finally able to talk in the hospital, he's three years old, and they were asking him, you know, what can you tell us about what happened while you've been out there in those woods? What was going on? What happened during these two days that you've been gone and two nights? And the one thing that he did say to them was that he had a friend stay with him while he was in the woods all that time. And this friend was a bear. That was Casey's explanation. It was a bear that stayed with him and helped him during all his time out there in the woods. Now, in that region of North Carolina, there certainly are black bears. Everyone's aware of that. Um, but some of the reporters who were starting to, you know, who were covering this story as it was unfolding, were curious about this idea of a bear staying with this three-year-old boy in the woods during all this time. So. An actual bear expert was contacted at the University of Montana and was asked, have you ever heard of such a thing? Have you ever researched anything which, you know, involved a a bear in any way helping a human being or a child? And according to this researcher, uh, he made it very clear to that, uh, no, this does not happen. He had never, ever come across any kind of incident or story in his research uh, where a bear ever did anything like this. As a matter of fact, he said bears normally would tend to avoid human beings. They have a very strong sense of smell, probably seven times the sense of smell that we humans have. If a bear had been out there at any time, anywhere near this boy, once he had detected that scent, he would prefer to go in the opposite direction. He's not about, it's just not something that happens. So that answered that question about 
you know, could this possibly have happened? Could a mother bear have possibly come upon this young human boy out there in the woods and maternal instincts take over and then the mother bear is somehow protecting young Casey out there in the woods. But according to this expert, it just doesn't happen. That's, it's just not something that's ever happened and it would go against the very instinctual behavior of, of bears. So that now brings us to questions that were raised about this case. Um, and the first one would be, how did this three-year-old boy elude all those searchers and the helicopter and the drones? So this boy was able to elude FLIR, um, which is pretty much thermal searching, and they they flew all throughout the, the vast woods around his yes. grandmother's mm-hmm. house, mm-hmm. and he was able to somehow not be seen or detected by any of these things that the people were using to try and find him. Um, and the next question would be, how did all those searchers miss him if he was so close to home? So if he was so close to home the entire time, how was it that he was so easily uh, missed? And the last question would be, what was it that kept Casey safe out there through the cold and the rain, two days without food and water? And this is the biggest question that I think is a part mm-hmm. of this case and is a reason why it's considered unsolved. I think it is a very big question, and it plays into the sense of how did this young boy, three-year-old boy, stay essentially alive out there by himself throughout the cold and the rain with no jacket, and he was wet. So I'm assuming, obviously, that made him more cold. And he had no food and water, so... Mm -hmm. How did he manage to survive these two harsh condition days outside? Yeah, and of course, as with any story like this that comes up in the news, theories start being proposed about what could be involved, what what happened in this case. Uh, everyone was very happy that he was found. So this is a, a story with a happy ending as far as he was found, and and that's great news, and everyone's happy, and his, and his family is relieved. But there are theories, and one of the theories that started circulating was considering the condition that uh, Casey was found in after these over two days and two nights out in the woods, uh, considering the cold temperatures and the rain and all that, considering all that, was it possible that at some point after he had wandered away from the house and was out there on his own, had he possibly been abducted or kidnapped by somebody? We don't know who. Is that possibly the case? And one of the thoughts that goes into this theory is that, um, you know, considering the way he, you know, how he was at that point with basically just some scratches. And then, yes, there was a little bit of hypothermia when he got to the hospital, of course. But um, overall, he seemed to be in, in relatively good shape there, physical shape. So is it possible that at some of this time when he had been missing, was he actually sheltered in a vehicle or even a building like an outbuilding of some farm nearby or some, you know, some kind of you know, garage or shack or something shed behind someone's home. Is there a possibility that he was actually being held for a while and that this person or persons who were holding him panicked when you had this massive search, you have up to a hundred searchers out there at any one time, uh, 100 people, including United States Marine Corps volunteers. And you have the helicopter going overhead. You have the, the drones, the sheriff and the deputies. Uh, was there a panic that set in and they just decided, you know what, I'm putting this kid back and I'm just getting out of here. I mean, was that, that's a theory and it circulated pretty quickly. Now the sheriff made it very clear, the sheriff who was in charge of this whole search operation uh, made it very clear that there was absolutely no evidence, nothing that 
in his professional opinion, indicated kidnapping or abduction by another human being, by adults. He just, there's just nothing there. He, he completely dismissed that theory. And that leads to the next uh, theory. <laughs> yeah, our next theory would be, um, which we are not trying to dismiss or do anything of the sort, uh, because this is obviously a scary situation for the people who were involved, the, the family, the mother, the father. Um, and this is just kind of a theory or an opinion that we kind of came came together and we thought of together. So maybe it was some kind of creature uh, that Casey had called a bear, um, actually a Bigfoot. Uh, there are plenty of people speculating about this theory. So we are not the only people that obviously have had this thought, which I think is not easily dismissible. I mean, he's a three-year-old boy, um, and as many of you, or if not all of you know, very young children have very imaginable minds that, that wander and, and they make up these imaginary friends or whatever it may be. So maybe he was just saying, I had somebody with me to keep me company when, in fact, he didn't have someone to keep him company. But um, what we found pointing to our theory, would we would think it would be a Bigfoot instead of a bear because the professional said this is not like bears to yeah. to be protective over human beings, especially because their scent is so strong. Yeah, Zach and I talked a lot about this case. Um, as far as the kidnapping idea goes, so I go back to that theory there. Another thing is a three-year-old boy, yes, he, he certainly is quite capable of having a great imagination and imaginary friends, but I would think that if some sort of adult had grabbed him, had, you know, took him by the hand, and I think that uh, the boy would have certainly pointed out that there was a man out there, there was a man or two men or a man and a woman, whatever it was. I think that would have definitely... Certainly, the the child would have been able to to articulate that and would have been able to share that. So I think that's another reason why the sheriff is is rather dismissive about the whole kidnapping or abduction idea. But I can understand why the idea came up. So when Zach and I were talking about this earlier today, I mean, uh, is it a bear or is it this very controversial idea of could it possibly be one of these uh, Bigfoot creatures? And in in the future, we plan on doing a podcast or two about this whole question and phenomena of, of Bigfoot or Sasquatch because it's become very uh, popular and it's very prevalent in our culture right now. Certainly here in America, there's been lots of TV shows. There's no shortage of books. There's a lot of uh, information going around on the internet uh, about uh, Bigfoot and there's a number of organizations that are doing investigations. So we are going to do a podcast about that. But Bear or Bigfoot, Zach and I were both talking about if you've ever been to a zoo... <laughs> and you're visiting the wild animals that are in the zoo there, there's one thing that sticks out right away. You normally do detect a scent, and usually a very strong scent, and whether it was a bear or a Bigfoot, I would think there would have been a pretty strong scent present from all that I've read about bears and Bigfoot. Uh, and if young Casey had been in close contact, especially for a good period of time, in those woods with either a bear or with a Bigfoot creature, you would think that some of that strong scent that should be there would certainly have been noticeable on the boy's clothes when he was found. And animals often uh, do tend to shed, as you know. So even some hairs or something like that. But we've never seen any report or any reference in any of the articles or anything we've been able to find on this particular incident that indicates that anything stuck out as far as uh, 
some sort of you know noticeable odor or scent on his clothes or uh, any kind of animal hairs that would have you know been noticeable right away to uh, the rescuers or to the personnel in the hospital too so it's a mystery <laughs> and it's, it's definitely a mystery, mystery yeah. yes mm-hmm. all right so the great thing about this case is that casey was found and was in good shape and hopefully he will enjoy a happy and a long life the strange thing about this case though is there are so many unanswered questions about how he survived and was this bear or imaginary friend um or was this bear a Bigfoot? Uh, those questions, obviously, are probably not going to be answered. And it leaves it up to us to mm-hmm. to think about these things and, and sit and really ponder on what we think and what we believe kind of happened to Casey and what this bear figure may have been. Again, like whether it have been imaginary friend or a Bigfoot or even maybe a bear. Maybe he was correct on what his his recalling of the situation is. But I think that that is a very compelling question to ask. What was this bear figure that he claims to have had as a, a friend and to have kept him alive for those two harsh days outside? Yeah, I... Usually we like to try to come up with our own personal opinions and our own theories or whatever. This one's a real puzzlement. Uh, I do tend to look at experts for you know, their information and their, their references and their explanations to me. And when I was reading the uh, words from that bear expert at the University of Montana, I mean, I, I tend to listen to those type of people, and he just seemed just startled and was absolutely adamant. There's just no way this happened. It's just absolutely contrary. Maybe this was one exception to that rule of nature that he is so aware of and that he has researched all his life and that he has, you know, written and taught about all these years, but maybe it was. And on the other hand, I mean, there are certainly, I read some of the things that people have written over the last uh, two years about this case and and the possibility of a a Bigfoot that would have um, been willing to help this small young human boy and, you know, provide some sort of physical protection for him or kept him going, watched over him when he was sleeping or whatever, trying to keep him dry. I don't know. I, I, I don't know which way to go on this one. This one is definitely an unsolved mystery. We are happy, though. That's the important thing is, thank God he was found, and he was found in good shape, and he's doing well, and we hope he does have that happy and uh, long life. We're happy for him and his family. That's great to have a success story like this yes. where we have a unsolved disappearance that does get solved, and fortunately within just a few days. Uh, that's good, but I honestly have to say on this one, I, I don't, I don't know what to say right now. I, I'm keep hoping that we'll find more information at some point, that more will be released to the public. Uh, but you know, we have to be careful about the privacy of the boy and his family, and you don't want to violate that either. So, it was an interesting disappearance of a young child right here in America in 2019. But I'd have to say right now, uh, the jury's out for me. I, I, I don't know what to think. <laughs> it's. It's a lot for me to jump to the idea of a Bigfoot creature. This is still a controversial subject. I mean, I've become more and more interested in that subject over the last, say, 10 years. When I was younger, I didn't really read much about that. Uh, so I, I, I'm having a hard time choosing either one of these explanations right now. And I don't know of any alternative explanation. Yeah, I'm, I'm puzzled as well because I know in a couple of years, you know what I mean, these people are going to want to go back and ask, ask this kid questions as to what mm-hmm. happened. And... Mm-hmm. 
he's not going to know because I know for a fact, you know what I mean? I don't remember <laughs> really anything from when I was three years old. So right. I'm sure it'll definitely be a very overwhelming and uh, very hard to recollect what actually happened uh, during this time period in his life. And it's just a certain amount of stress that no kid that age should go th- have to go through. Right, right. So I think it should kind of just be left how it is. I mean, he's safe, he's at home with his family, and I think that is kind of best-case scenario with what happened with this case. Right. Interesting case, and we'll keep watching to see if we find anything else out about this. But for now, we thought this would be an interesting case for one of our podcasts on missing people. Now, the second case we chose for this podcast, as Zach had mentioned earlier, was it uh, goes back to 1938 in the state of Colorado. And we picked this case because uh, even though it's going back quite a few decades, it's an interesting case. It has a few mysterious twists in it. And and, uh, we want to share that with you now because it might not be a case that you're actually familiar with. I'm not sure how many people are familiar with this particular case. I've done quite a bit of reading on it and quite a bit of research in newspaper archives back from the 1938 period about this case. So it all starts on July 2nd of 1938. Um, A four-year-old boy, Alfred Bilehartz, his family lived in Denver, Colorado. But like many people back then, they were going to the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado, not too far from Denver, on a family fishing trip. And from what I've read, they had done this previously, too. This wasn't the first time this family had gone there. And many families went to the Rocky Mountain National Park in those days for fishing, for swimming, just for camping out. Uh, It was a very popular national park. It's 1938, so it's still the Depression time now. Uh, It's it's prior to World War II breaking out. So um, it's it's a period in America where people certainly did, if they could afford it, if they could pull it off, enjoy some vacations and enjoy trips like this. Now, according to the newspaper reports that came out in 1938 about this incident that we're going to discuss, uh, the Bilehartz family had a lot of children. Different newspaper articles, and this is very typical from that period, I've done a lot of research in newspaper archives, uh, different you know, articles are giving you different numbers of children are in the family. You know, some of them are even saying he has 10 siblings, some are saying he has 11 siblings. So uh, Zach's father and I are both genealogists, and we've done a lot of genealogical research over the past say 10 years, our own family, and then for other people as well. So we decided that we were going to do some genealogical research into this case ourselves, if nothing else, just to get more of a handle on what exactly was the size of this family, you know, just, just so we know, just we have some of the basic facts down. We went through a number of the census records for this family, and as best we can determine, there were, there were definitely nine children in this family, and little Alfred was the youngest of these children, uh, the oldest child, interestingly enough, had been born in 1907. Alfred's born around 1934. So there's quite a gap here in, in, the, in the age span of the children. Um, and when we talk about the family went on this family fishing trip to the national park there, uh, this isn't just the father and the mother and whatever children are still living at home. Uh, his oldest sister was married by this point, And we know for a fact from the newspaper reports, she was there along with her husband on this trip. So... Uh, There was about 12 or 13 people, according to the newspaper reports, total for this family group that's there now at this cabin in the Rocky Mountain National Park uh, for this particular uh, case that we're going to go over. Now, at some point after they get to the park, Alfred does disappear. Four-year-old Alfred 
disappears. And there's a little bit of confusion about what exactly was involved in the disappearance of Alfred himself. Okay, so one newspaper article said Alfred left the cabin where the family was staying after breakfast, and then his mother came out and told him to come back in. He said he would be in in a few minutes, but he disappeared and never came back in. One article said he wandered off while the family was setting up the camp. Now, most newspaper articles say Alfred went down to the river with his dad to wash up. Then, he wandered upstream about 500 feet where his brother-in-law, who was married to Alfred's oldest sister, was washing up with a friend. When those two adults turned around to return to the cabin, they spotted a rabbit and they chased it. They thought Alfred was behind them, but by the time they got back to the cabin... Alfred was nowhere to be seen. Either way, he disappeared. The entire family began searching for him, but they did not find him. They then notified the park rangers. The ranger in charge of that section of the park, Ranger Jack Mumaw, began to organize a search party immediately. Yeah, I'll I'll just mention one thing quick that I've read. This ranger, Jack Mumaw, became a pretty well-known and famous park ranger in his day and he was one of the newspaper articles i read had said that he had quite a reputation for rescuing many people in that national park during his years up to that point as a park ranger so anyway uh ranger mumal does help uh, does begin to form a very large search party uh that again the different newspaper articles give you a different numbers but at least 100 people were quickly assembled and one of the reasons they were able to do that in this national park was Again, we mentioned this was during the Depression. There were a large number of workers right there at the Rocky Mountain National Park who were uh, workers in the Civilian Conservation Corps, the CCC program. That was a New Deal program that had been set up to provide work, employment opportunities for mostly unmarried men because very often they would have to travel for, for many of these assignments. And what these men were doing in the park as part of the Civilian Conservation Corps, they would be... uh, building trails, uh, clearing out underbrush. They would actually be building shelters that were used around the park and things like that. So you had at least, all the newspaper articles agree that there was a large number of, uh, of, and many of them were young men, of young men from the Civilian Conservation Corps that immediately jumped in to volunteer and help the rangers in the search for four-year-old Alfred. Now, some of the rangers had something kind of unique at that time. They actually had shortwave radios. They were rather bulky, but they did like using these. So you would have to carry it on your back because of the size of them and the weight. But they were using these bulky shortwave radios, uh, and they would regularly report in to the uh, park headquarters so to keep the people back at headquarters updated on what was going on with the search and what progress they were making. So over the next week or so, even more searchers joined them. The rangers called in for bloodhounds to be brought from the Colorado State Penitentiary, and they were brought in. From the beginning we do know that the rangers strongly suspected that the boy had probably fallen into the river. It was a very fast-moving river, and they really did suspect that he got, however it happened, did he trip and fall, did he hit his head, but he fell into that river at some point, and that he had been dragged downriver. So at one point, the rangers arranged for some of the searchers and the rangers to work together, and they built a temporary dam to block off just a portion of the one river that led into the larger river there in in the park. So they made this dam with rocks and logs and sandbags, and they were able to successfully block off, slow down the flow of water for for a a section of the river, and then they actually used grappling hooks 
um, and Pikes, you know, to search for the remains of Alfred if they could find him in, in what was left there, you know, in the riverbank itself and what was left there. But they never found anything with that, um, that search on the river there. But they did try. They did, in the course of, of going along the river there, uh, come upon five different large beaver dams. All of those were destroyed because the thought was the boy could have been swept downstream and had been caught in one of these large, and they can be very large. I mean, if you've seen them, uh, river dams, uh, beaver dams that were built in the river. But again, even with the destruction of those dams, they never found any, anything. They never found Alfred and they never found his clothes or anything like that. Uh, nothing was in any of those. Nothing was snagged on any of the wood from those dams. So the fact that his body was not found at that point began to make a number of the volunteer searchers in particular think, um, maybe he didn't fall in the river because we should have seen something by this point. He should have been, you know, at, okay, he would be swept so far, but between these dams and between the, the grappling hooks we use and all that, we're not getting anywhere. So that was just something that they would express to reporters. They were very suspicious that maybe there's something else going on um, with Alfred's disappearance. Um, initially, the newspaper reports, it's interesting, they do show that the parents were going along with this idea of Alfred has fallen into the river. The parents were listening to the rangers. They were going along with this. But as the day started to go by and nothing was being found in the river and, and none of the operations that they were using with building the dam and using the, you know, the grappling hooks and breaking up the beaver dams, the parents began to express to reporters their thought was more along the lines now of Alfred has been kidnapped by someone. And they made that very clear to the reporters. The bloodhounds that were brought in, uh, they would track the scent for a while at one point down along the riverbank, and then it just stopped. And then a little bit into the park, for quite some distance, actually, the bloodhounds seemed to have had the track of Alfred. And then that stopped at a fork in the road that, you know, developed at one point in the park. And that was the end of, of uh, any success for the bloodhounds. So an interesting thing happened on that same day, that the very first day that Alfred had disappeared, there was a couple out, a husband and wife were hiking, about six miles away in the park, gives you an idea of the size of this park, about six miles away, a couple was out hiking, so they're not really aware of all this that's going on. Um, and it was about five hours after Alfred had first been reported, as, you know, had first been discovered that he had disappeared, that they, his parents couldn't find him, the family couldn't find him. So five hours later, and about six miles away, this couple's out hiking, they've stopped to take a rest, and while they're sitting there, they're looking up towards the top of what was known as Mount Chapin, uh, and uh, in particular, a section of that mound at the top, uh, Devil's Nest was the, the name that it was given. And they believed they had seen a young boy sitting there on a boulder. Now, this would be quite high up. They said this would be a several thousand feet elevation rise from where the family's fishing cabin was, you know, where they were at for their family fishing vacation, five miles away and, and several thousand feet higher than from where Alfred had originally been. Um, they did go to the park rangers to report this because they were concerned about it. But before they did that, they actually tried to hike up there themselves, and they did get pretty much all the way up there, and there was no sight of this boy. They were a little bit concerned because it's a pretty rough terrain up there, and they were concerned of, could a young boy really be up here all by himself? It seemed you know, a rather difficult thing for him to pull off. So after they had gone up there and hiked and tried to find uh, Alfred, or uh, find whoever this boy was, they didn't know anything yet about the, the disappearance of, of Alfred. Uh, they did go to the rangers, and they did tell the rangers about this sighting. The rangers believed them, and of course the rangers are fully aware now of Alfred's disappearance, so the rangers did go to that Mount Chapin, and they themselves climbed up, hiked up to the top of that mount. 
The Rangers didn't find anything either, but they made it very clear to the newspaper reporters, we, uh, we find it virtually impossible that a young boy could have gotten up in this terrain and this high up all by himself. They just, just, they just didn't think it was possible for Alfred to have wandered that far within those five hours and gotten up that high on the top of that mound. They just dismissed that as having been possible. Now, another interesting thing happened on Friday, July 8th, several days after Alfred had disappeared, someone found a, uh, a bandage, and it had blood on it, and uh, the rangers discussed this with Alfred's parents. The mother said that she had placed a bandage on Alfred's one foot because he had a blister on his heel. She had placed that adhesive bandage on his foot uh, you know, prior to them coming to the park for the trip. So was this the bandage that Alfred's mother had you know, had put on his foot uh, prior to their coming to the park. Well, none of the newspaper reports really explained to us that Alfred's mother actually ever saw the bandage or looked at it or told the Rangers, yes, this is definitely the adhesive bandage I put on Alfred's foot. So we don't really, we can't really comment on that directly. We do know that the Rangers, though, took it seriously. They did think that possibly this bloodied bandage was the one that Alfred had been wearing. So they notified the FBI the FBI, according to many newspaper accounts, did take the bandage. They were going to take this back to their laboratories in Washington uh, to research and see what they could find. Now, unfortunately about that story, that's pretty much all we know about the FBI involvement with this bloodied bandage that had been found. There were no newspaper reports, and I spent hours going through the archives of so many newspapers. Uh, no further report about did the FBI ever determine anything uh, did they ever come out with any kind of final report on this? There's nothing. We can find nothing about that. So the bandage is possibly a clue and an interesting clue, but we don't really know what the FBI did. Now, certainly back in those days, they didn't have the DNA technology we have now and all that. So I don't know how much the FBI would have been able to figure out. I would have liked to have known more about if the mother had actually looked at that bandage and said, that's the one I put on Alfred's foot. But we just, there's no documentation on that in any of the newspaper articles. Now, another interesting thing happened right around July 8th, several days after Alfred had disappeared. In the state of Nebraska, close to the border with the state of Colorado, where Rocky Mountain National Park is, a woman was riding in a car with her husband, and as they were driving on this highway, close to the border with Colorado, she noticed a man walking on the highway, and he had a very young boy walking along with him. She looked at them. She wasn't thinking about this case. She actually wasn't really aware about Alfred at this point. So um, they went home. It was the next day that she actually was looking in a newspaper, and many newspapers across America at this time were running photographs of Alfred. He was this little blonde-haired, curly-haired boy. Uh, many of them were putting his photograph in the paper and some sort of article about what had gone on with the disappearance of this boy. So once she saw that picture in the newspaper, she was convinced that that was the boy she saw with this man, or strange man as she called him, walking along that highway when she was with her husband, the day before. So she actually called her brother-in-law because he was in Denver and uh, she had him notify the police. Police in Nebraska actually did uh, get notified about this themselves and they did do somewhat of a search to see if they could ever find this man and this boy that had been seen walking the day before, but nothing ever came of, of that particular search. So now on Sunday, November 27th, 1938, an adult man in overalls wearing a messenger's cap knocks on the Beelharts family's home front door. So the father, William Harvey Beelharts, answers the door. The man said, are you Mr. Beelharts? The father replied, yes. 
Then, without another word, the man shoved an unsealed envelope into Mr. Beelhart's hand, and then walks away rapidly. Mr. B opens the envelope and pulls out a note. We have gone out west. We are now out of money. Your boy has not taken to us. We will return him to you if you secure $500 in old $1, 5 and $10 bills and place them in a kettle at the corner of East 32nd Avenue and Syracuse Street. So now, at this point, Mr. B stops reading the note, and Mr. B and his son, Matthew, ran out of the house and tried to find the man who delivered this note to them. But, no luck. So when they return home, he reads the rest of the note. If he follows these instructions, he will get Alfred back safe within 24 hours. Uh, there was a big family discussion, and that night they decided not to tell the police, but the next morning they had a change of heart. They did call the police, and newspapers got wind of this. Mm-hmm. Mr. Beelharts told the reporters that he would mortgage his house to get this ransom money. So he was very, very serious about this ransom money and getting his son back to be reunited with his family. Yeah, Alfred's parents were absolutely convinced by this point, and this is made clear in numerous newspaper articles where they're quoted and where they're interviewed. They were absolutely convinced he's still alive, and he's going to come home one day. And that's exactly how the father would often say it. Matter of fact, in one article I read, the father had said, his toys are still where he left them, and they'll be there for him when he comes home. Uh, they were absolutely convinced. Uh, like you had said, uh, at first they weren't going to call the police, but then they did. So once they called the police, the police, and this is in Denver, Colorado, that's where their home was, uh, Six carloads of police, according to the newspaper articles, and, quote, the crack detectives from the Denver Police Department did respond. They came to the home, they looked at the note, they spoke with the parents, and the police decided, especially the detectives that were involved, let's try to set a trap so we can catch these people that wrote this ransom note to you. So they had Mr. Bilehart's actually uh, write a note and he was going to put it in that kettle where they wanted those $1 bills and those $5 bills and those $10 bills. Now, the note that Mr. Bauhartz wrote said, if you give me proof that you have my boy, I will pay you the money. And they did put that note into the kettle, and they put it at that location. Now, the police had both police officers and detectives hidden in all around this area. Where Alfred's family lived, from what I've read in some of those news articles, it was very close to the municipal airport. So there was a number of hillocks around and all that. There were places for the police to hide in that general vicinity of where this kettle was to be placed with the money. And uh, the police were hidden. They were waiting to see who's going to come for this kettle and this money so that they could nab them and arrest them there for uh, sending this ransom note to Alfred's parents. So all of these police officers are out there, hidden. Police are setting barricades up in some of the streets in the distance so that if anyone gets there and then tries to make a fast escape, they're going to be able to stop them with the barricades. And uh, Alfred's father was there, and we know his brother Matthew was there. Matthew's in his 20s at this point, uh, Alfred's brother Matthew's. Matthew, excuse me. So um, eventually what happens is uh, a car actually pulled up to where this kettle is located, right close to the kettle at that intersection. And a man gets out of the car, and he pulls out his dog with him. And there's a woman still in the car, and she's sitting there. So he comes out. The police are all watching. The problem was that Matthew, Alfred's brother, was just, you know, very hyper at this point, and he just couldn't control himself, and he just shouted out at the top of his lungs, stop, 
this panicked the man. The man just went into a complete panic and jumped back in the car, pulling the dog in with him, and then just took off at high speed. He wanted to get out of there. So the police were wondering, is this, is this the people that were responsible for this ransom note? So they take off after him, but meanwhile, he runs into one of those police barricades that had been set up, and the police were able to stop him, and they took him into the police station for questioning. After they had talked to him for a while, he explained to them that he and his wife often came to this location, this general area, to walk their dog almost every day. And that's what they were doing, and he just panicked because someone screamed stop at the top of their lungs. The police believed him, and they actually just let him go, him and his wife and the dog, and they left, and that was the end of it. Now, at this point, the captain of the police detectives in Denver actually spoke with reporters from different newspapers and he made it very clear to them, and I'm actually quoting from him, we don't believe Alfred is alive. We think this whole thing is a cruel hoax. But the police did turn that ransom note over to the FBI. Once again, because the FBI at this point, any kind of kidnapping, this is something that the FBI is going to get involved with. And again, it's one of these things where we have newspaper articles where the police are explaining we've turned it over to the FBI. But there's no follow-up articles that we could ever find. And we went through years' worth of archives, many different newspapers, especially out in Colorado and Nebraska and surrounding states. There's just no follow-up on any, any of these newspapers about what the FBI did with that ransom note either. There were some articles in the newspapers that the police actually had some suspects regarding this ransom note incident, but there were never any arrests or identifications of the subjects or suspects. Um, Alfred's story slowly disappeared from the news and public awareness. So now this brings us into the theories about what happened to Alfred and what kind of went down during this time that he was considered missing or kidnapped. So, Yeah, and once again, we're talking about 1938, and we're talking about a lot of reliance on whatever evidence, whatever information we can find from old newspaper articles, anything. There's all kinds of stories I've seen out on the internet about this particular case, a, a few. And, you know, none of them agree on all the details. And, of course, when you start reading the newspaper articles, you can see why. But um, most of them don't go into it too deeply. It seems to me that sometimes these writers have a preconceived idea already that they want to push, whether it's, you know, a kidnapping story or drowning or, you know, paranormal aspects or whatever it is. They always seem to have. So what we try to do here in the attic is we really try to be objective and, and present all the evidence that we've been able to find. And we want to stress that we don't just depend on something that you read on the internet. That's why we spend a lot of time going through genealogical records, the old U.S. Census records, to try to get an understanding of, of Alfred's family. His father was a nurseryman, landscaper and gardener. That's what he did. Uh, and he did have, he and his wife did have that large family. And from everything I've ever read, you know, they were a very close family. Everything I can pick up about them, they're definitely a close family. But there are theories about this. It is an unsolved disappearance. So, of course, the number one theory, the one that's been discussed very much by those who have looked into this case ever since 1938, is Alfred drowned. He drowned in the Roaring River, the one river there in the National Park. Uh, the questions, did he? Again, did he slip accidentally? Did he fall, hit his head on a rock or something, then get swept downstream and drown? Was his body caught in some of those large rocks that are spread around within the river? Um, had an animal actually found the body of poor Alfred? And there are certainly bears in that park and mountain lions that have been reported too. So did he possibly become entangled under the water, you know, with whatever's under the water there, uh, whether it's vegetation or debris that was... We read about 
the, the beaver dams, you know, was there something, some kind of obstacle, something under the water where possibly the body was snagged under the water. So it was never, never seen and never found, even when they did that, uh, you know, using of the grapple hooks, trying to find, find him after they dammed off part of the river there. Now, that ranger that was in charge of the district where this all happened in the Rocky Mountain National Park, that was that ranger, uh, Jack Mumau. Some years later, after he had retired, he actually wrote a book about his experiences as a ranger. The book came out in 1963, and it was entitled Recollections of a Rocky Mountain Ranger. In the book, he tells a number of stories about all the experiences he had over the years. He does tell a story about this particular disappearance of, of Alfred um, in the Rocky Mountain National Park. And I'm going to quote to you right from the book, because it is kind of interesting. Um, one morning before the crews arrived, and this is a quote right from his book, I filled a gunny sack, you know, small supply sack, with rags and enough stones to give it about the weight of a small body, and I tossed it into the stream where the boy was last seen. I had to run fast to keep up with it, keep it in sight until it reached Fall River, and there it promptly disappeared under an overhanging branch. I had some boys work that section for days. They found nothing, not even the sack. So... No sack, and nor did they find Alfred. Now, Ranger Mumal's story here, that's not definitive proof of anything. I mean, that was, you know, it shows, though, that he was very suspicious, and the Rangers made this pretty clear. They, their theory really was he, the poor boy drowned. The poor boy drowned in this river. That was, that, that was definitely their thoughts. So uh, the book, if nothing else, the story that he wrote in his book does reflect that common thinking that was among the Rangers in the park at that time. They really did think that he somehow fell in that river and drowned. The fact that they couldn't even find the sack that Ranger Mumau used in that experiment that morning, they never even found that sack that he put in there, just seemed to reconfirm in his mind that this is what happened. Just like the sack, the body of this poor boy, it disappeared. Nobody's been able to find it between the swiftness of the river and all the other things we talked about, the obstructions and all of that. So that's theory number one. The poor boy drowned in the river. So that now brings us into theory number two. And along with theory number one, this is another plausible explanation as to what happened to Alfred. So this theory states that Alfred was kidnapped. We know many of the volunteer searchers came to believe that he had been abducted. Did those hikers who saw a young boy way up on, up in the devil's nest, is what it was called, see Alfred? Did that woman in Nebraska see Alfred walking along a highway with that unidentified man? And then there was that bandage that was found. What a coincidence. Did the mother ever actually see the bandage so she could identify it as the one she put on Alfred's foot? We don't know. There are reports of this in the newspaper articles, and we never see any news reports about what the FBI did with it after they took it. Now, the ransom note. The police sure did not put much weight on the note. They clearly felt it was a hoax. But we must keep in mind, the 1930s in the United States were a time of numerous kidnappings. And with that being said, it was the Great Depression. Uh, Estimates run into the thousands. Many wealth people used armed chauffeurs and bodyguards. It was till the Great Depression. People were looking for money any way they could get it, including fake ransom notes. So... I actually looked this up. The $500 in 1938 um, is equivalent to just about 10 grand in today's money. It's $9,680.96. Uh, 
So back then, especially in the Depression, where not a lot of people were coming across money, this is a lot of money. And like Alfred's dad stated, he would remortgage the home That's right. to get the money that he needed to get his son back. That's right. That $500 was not something that he was able to afford right off the bat, you know, right off yeah. the top of his head. He, he didn't have that kind of money, and that's why he literally was telling those reporters, you know, I, I will mortgage his house again to get that kind of cash. Um, one thing Zach and I want to just mention here at this point, now that we've gone through the second theory about the kidnapping, the 1930s in America were definitely a period of almost what some historians have called an epidemic of kidnappings. In 1932... The Lindbergh baby was kidnapped. That was just a huge national story. Many newspapers referred to it as the crime of the century. That was really the beginning. Uh, what had happened was um, the Depression, as you mentioned, was continuing, so there were a lot of people that were hurting financially. Some of the people that were hurting financially were the old gangsters, those organized crime figures that had been running all the speakeasies and illegal gambling operations and all that during the period of Prohibition. Well, that ended in 1933. Money, money was drying up for these people. So believe it or not, a number of these kidnappings in the 1930s were being carried out by gangsters, by organized crime figures, in order to get cash. And they would focus more on wealthy individuals. They were going after people that had money. That's where the money is to go after the wealthy. They were doing that. The estimates run, in, uh, estimates run into the thousands for the number of kidnappings that were reported in the United States during the 1930s, certainly from 1932 after the Lindbergh baby kidnapping on. We'll probably do a podcast on that Lindbergh baby kidnapping because it's a very interesting subject. Yeah, definitely. I want to do that. And we might even do a podcast a bit about that 1930s period and this this epidemic of kidnappings all across the country. There are many, many stories that have been uh, written down from that period about these kidnappings. So it was, it was unfortunately not an uncommon occurrence at that point. Kidnapping was, was certainly being carried out in large numbers across the country. To give you an idea of how large the New York Times newspaper actually began to run a regular feature in their newspaper in the 1930s on recent kidnappings in America. You know, you can go into the paper and you see the notices for all the, you know, the newborn babies and you see the obituary notices. And right along with that would be recent kidnappings in America. And they would list actually the names and locations of the most recent kidnappings that they were uh, being made aware of that were being reported. That's how common, unfortunately, it was becoming. And I think a lot of us aren't aware of that today that that was a serious problem. So the kidnapping theory, it, it certainly is one that I think is valid and has to be looked at, and we are looking at it as one of the uh, possibilities because kidnapping was unfortunately widespread during this period. There's a third theory. This is not one that's been brought up by a lot of people, but I think it, human nature is human nature, and people are going to think about these type of things and they're going to try and come up with some kind of explanation because most of us don't like to have an unsolved mystery staring us in the face. Some people actually wondered out loud, was Alfred possibly accidentally killed by someone? And, you know, one of the other kids maybe hit him in the head with a rock or something like that. Was he accidentally killed? Was the family actually trying to cover all of this up? And I think that's the weakest of any of the theories that we've read and that we've looked at. Um, if he had been accidentally killed... You know, why wasn't the body ever found at all? Everything we read about this family shows what a close family they are, and you see the parents' determination as they switch from thinking, yes, the poor boy, our son fell in the river, to no, our youngest son is still alive. He's been kidnapped, and he's going to come home again. And you can see that determination, and it really comes through. And most of the articles I've read 
most of the information we looked at today, they're a close family, they're a tight family, and, uh, well, just the fact that they were all there for that, for that fishing uh, trip. The thing about the, the, two, you know, the two men that were coming back up from the stream, the one story that was in so many of the newspapers, articles that said that, you know, Alfred and his father had gone to the stream to wash up, and then Alfred's father was finished. He went back to the cabin, but Alfred wanted to wander along and about 500 feet up the stream was his brother-in-law, Orin. And when we were going through the census records, we saw that little Alfred's brother-in-law, who's in his 30s, he's married to Alfred's youngest, uh, oldest sister. You know, on the census records, they're living right smack next door to Alfred and his family. So, you know, Alfred had a lot of contact with his, yeah. his, his, his yeah. brother-in-law, who's significantly who's old enough to be his father, really. <laughs> but uh, Alfred, so there, there's definitely this closeness in the family. And we see that they're all there for this fishing trip. We find out that this isn't the only fishing trip. This is something they love to do. It's big family get-togethers. Even with the ransom that we found out that there was a family meeting called. The father and mother wanted everybody involved in this, including the ones that were out of the house and married. Everyone had to go over on this. Everyone was participating in that decision. You know, do we call the police or do we not call the police about this ransom note? So I think they're a close family. I just, I just can't see anything that makes me think that this is in any way plausible, that there was an accidental death and that they would um, cover this up for their youngest child, you know, this four-year-old child. I, that... That I just don't think so. Sometimes, Zach and I were talking about this earlier, you know, usually when we're looking at something, especially a case like this, uh, a disappearance of a child, you know, we're trying to stay objective and, and use this. You know, we're trying to think. We're trying to use the head and not the heart. But in a case like this with this four-year-old boy, and we kept looking at his picture today with that, you know, the blonde curly hair, you can see why the newspapers all across America were, were reporting this story because it was an Associated Press story. Yeah, and even the United Press got into that. Um, you know, it, it's, it's uh, you know, the heart, it just comes in. Yeah. You can't help it. I mean, yeah. it, it's just, it's emotional. You think about the family, and I just, I feel so strongly now that this family was a very close, large family, and this is a real tragedy. This is a real, real tragedy. So I, I'm going back and forth between my heart and my head. I'm, I'm having yeah. trouble deciding, did he really drown? Which would be a logical explanation, and yep. I know the Rangers think that, but, or, uh, you know, they never did find anything. And after all that work and with all those searchers who began to switch their thinking to, he's not in this park anywhere. We're not finding him on the land, certainly, and we're not finding him in the river. Um, we don't think he's here in the park at all anymore. So... You know, there's that, but then, you know, that kidnapping uh, theory does make sense to me. I mean, there was an awful lot of it. Then that ransom note there may have been a hoax. Is it possible that it was just there? And there are many people in that park. It was a very popular vacation spot. It was very popular, like I said, for swimming, for fishing, for camping out. Is it possible there was a, a couple there who didn't have children, or who maybe had a child and had lost that child and wanted another child? I don't know. I mean, could that have happened so quickly? Like the father often told reporters, this disappearance happened within a five-minute period, yeah. basically, from, you know, from, from what all, all the facts, as they were told and reported on. Uh, it's a five-minute period. You know, could that possibly have happened? Did someone take him, not for the purposes of ransom, but for a son? You know, I don't know. I don't, I, my heart's not letting me rule any of that out right now. Yeah, and that would be a very plausible explanation as well. And um, like Mark was saying, we were looking at his picture earlier, and we're actually going to put that up in, yes, in, the, put um, that up. in the podcast here. Um, and one thing I did actually want to bring up about the third theory is that a lot of these, well, actually all of these national parks in the United States do not have a list of missing people who have gone missing in these national parks. 
and it would cost hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, to get every single one of these national mm-hmm. parks to put together a list of these people mm-hmm. who have gone missing. And that also goes along with the whole covering it up theory. Um, the national parks don't want this bad rep of these people who went missing, so they don't put together a list. And after a certain period of time, they stop looking for these people. So that that kind of plays into the whole they're trying to cover it up theory. So, uh, Mark, if you don't mind, I'm actually going to kind of go into what I mm-hmm, kind of think. So I talked to Mark about this like just before we kind of sat down and really were about to get ready to record this episode. And I, along with uh, the police, kind of think that the ransom note might have been a hoax, um, especially because this was considered national news. You know what I mean? This mm-hmm. was printed in newspapers, and people all over the world knew about what was going on with Alfred. So my theory is that the newspaper articles gave this like hint that this boy was missing, and it gave the idea to somebody to make this ransom note and ask for this $500 to do whatever they needed to do with this $500 because it was the Great Depression and money was hard to come by. Mm-hmm. So I think it is a very plausible thing to think that somebody wanted this money. They didn't actually have Alfred. They just wanted either the attention, which they didn't get, and if it was the mailman that delivered this letter, he really does have some courage to bring it up yeah. and hand deliver that that message. And it just also goes to show that this ransom note could have been a way to divert the minds of the family and have them thinking that it's he had been kidnapped instead of him actually drowning or you know what I mean. So it shifts their whole mindset to the theory of our boy is not dead. You know what I mean? He's going to come home. I have his toys set in the same exact spot that I had him. Mm -hmm. And it gives them a sense of false hope. And I think that no family should ever have to go through this, obviously. Absolutely. Um, But it gives them a, like a false hope or it gives Mm -hmm. them the hope that their kid will come home eventually. Mm -hmm. And it kind of drifts their mind away from the fact that, it is a possibility that their son could have actually drowned in the river. Right. So along with this person making this note and distracting them and trying to get this money, it's giving them a false sense of my son will come home one day Mm -hmm. and we will be waiting for the day that he comes home. It was reconfirming that belief that they already had and that belief that had been expressed in countless newspaper articles. I do think that whoever wrote that particular ransom note that we discussed, I don't think they had Alfred. I do think that was either someone very greedy or someone very needy that was trying to get quick money here. And that's why the amount was $500, which they probably thought would be the maximum they could get out of a family like like Alfred's. When you read some of those newspaper articles, I just want to mention this too. It's interesting. I mean, they when they, you know, the newspaper reporters were covering the basic 
information on the story here, they would literally list the family's home address. They actually told you the, the number and the street address. Yeah. So it would not be impossible for someone to find out with I this information right out of the newspaper. They would literally list their address. Uh, they knew exactly where they lived. So I it wouldn't be hard for someone like that man in, in the overalls and the messenger cap, like a Western Union, you know, telegram cap, you know, to just show up. that He knew exactly where they were. So if you're trying to get 500 bucks for quick money, for whatever reason, and I think in this case, that is what happened, and I think that's why the police were kind of dismissive of it, but they set that trap. They wanted to catch these people, and the police did tell newspaper reporters later that they did have suspects about, uh, you know, that they said that they believed were responsible for the writing of this note and the delivery of it to Alfred's uh, parents' house, but uh, no one was ever arrested, and they never gave out any names, but, and it made me think like, yes, because this might have been someone might have pulled another stunt like this off with somebody else in Denver, Colorado, and the police were onto this, and this looked like another case just like that previous one. They didn't specify that, but I think that might have been behind, because when we look at that period of the 1930s, and we mentioned about all the kidnappings that were taking place, there were certainly instances where people were claiming that they had, um, you know, somebody's uh, missing family member, and they were trying to get the ransom money, and sure enough, you know, they did not have that family member. This was just a ploy to get cash, either because they were very greedy, or like I said, maybe they were needy. They were actually, you know, desperate for money, and they were trying, this is, that would be a terrible thing to do to anybody, like you said. I think that'd be a a horrible thing, and and for Alfred's mother and father, all it did was reaffirm that belief they already had. See, he's still alive. Somebody's got him. And even after all that, they still believe that. They made that clear report. He's going to come home someday. He's going to come home someday. Yeah, and another thing that I actually want to bring up is they used Alfred as almost this leverage to try and get this money because a lot of people know that people don't mess around, you know what I mean, trying to save their kids, you know what I mean? People would right. go to extreme extents to to make sure their kid was home safe. So it's not a stretch to think that he wouldn't give that money, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's almost... I would almost think there would be an 100% chance that Alfred's father would have given that money. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Get his child back home. And all that family would have pitched in. And that is a terrible thing for the person who wrote the ransom note to do if the ransom note was written with the intent that we believe that it was written for. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they they were playing on the emotions of the parents and the fact that they knew the parents believed he was still alive and that somebody had him. And like I said, they knew just where to go. There was no secret because I couldn't believe it when I was reading some of those articles. I thought, my God, they're listing the full street address of where the family is, where they live. Yeah, I didn't so know you would not have problems finding that house if you want to deliver a ransom note in the fashion that that note was delivered. It was right there. In the, and more than one article I saw, they actually listed uh, the full address. And I thought, wow, this is not something that we would want to see today, you know, in a, in a case like this. But that was 1938. And that's just the way the world worked at that time. Yeah, it was definitely a very different time period back then, obviously. And another thing that kind of raises an eyebrow for me is if the person who delivered the the message was the writer of the ransom note, Mm -hmm. like I said, they have a lot of courage to to bring it personally up to the house themselves. But maybe this person was, was also being used as a pawn to deliver this ransom message. Mm -hmm. And maybe on the other side of this person was, you know what I mean? If you don't deliver this ransom note, we're going to kidnap your child. We're going to, you know what I mean? 
harm your family. Yes, so yeah, could have been. Deliver this message, and you know what I mean. We'll let your family go. We'll let whatever whatever the other case may be. We'll right. let that slide, and you'll be free to go. Absolutely. No, that's a very good idea. Uh, don't rule out anything for that period of the 1930s when we had so many kidnappings and so many fake ransom notes going around. I mean, anything's possible. And certainly, yes, uh, you know, using somebody else as part of your ploy in order to cover your own tracks. The one thing that Alfred's father had made clear to the police was that whoever that man was in the overalls and the messenger cap, he cleared out of there very fast because he, when Alfred's father and his brother Matthew came running out of that house and tried to track that guy down, they just couldn't, there was just no, they said he was gone, no sight of him at all. He got out of there very quickly. Once he handed the note to Alfred's father, the, his father had said, you know, he just turned around and, and walked off very rapidly. He knew it was, it was in, he knew it was in the letter. Yeah, he knew, he knew. and uh, he There's had to get no out way. of there. He had to get out of there because you're delivering a ransom note. No way he didn't know it was in that letter. Letter, mm -hmm. regardless if he was again the writer or just the messenger, he had to have known what was in the the letter right. to not want to stick around to see the aftermath or have to deal with the repercussions of what would come with that. Exactly. Um, it's a shame because the first case we went over tonight had a happy ending. Yeah. At least that, that 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 young boy, you know, was still alive, three years old. And this case, it you know, it it saddens me to a degree because I, I can't help but feel for the family. And once you start going through like the records we did with the genealogical records, let alone all those newspaper articles, you begin to kind of feel like you're having a little bit of a, I don't know, a bond or a feel for this family, yeah. like almost that like you know them because you're starting to get into all the details. I knew all the brothers and sisters' names and when they were born. I'm I was actually looking at the. Uh, you know, you go out and find a grave. I was actually looking at where many of them are buried, his parents and, and where uh, many of his brothers and sisters. You know, you just start looking that stuff up when you're going out there and doing that kind of genealogical research. So it's sad. I think uh, with this second case here, with Alfred's case from 1938, I mean, unless somehow more information turns up, maybe more information about what did the FBI do with that bandage and what did they do with the ransom note or, or you know, something something that we don't know of as of this moment in time, uh, it's going to have to be labeled unsolved. It's still not solved, but we're going to keep looking into it because it is an interesting case yeah. and we do like to solve it. This is not entertainment for us. You know, this is very sad. If the young boy did die in that river, like the rangers suspected, and then the, many of the police suspected mm -hmm. as time went by, you know, that's a tragedy. He, you know, it's a shame to have died so young and not to have had a chance to enjoy life, to grow up, you know, and, and become an adult and get married and, and, and do all the things that we do, you know, uh, in our lives. That That's truly a tragedy for him, and it's a tragedy for the parents and all his brothers and sisters and what I believe was a very close family. So it's a sad case in that sense, and I do feel bad about that. But we'll keep watching and see if we can find anything else about this particular case. And we'll keep watching, too, about that first case with Casey. I mean, we're still up in the air. I mean, Bear or yeah. Bigfoot, I mean, that that's, a, you know, again, we need more information than what we've been able to find up to this point. We've tried to be as thorough as we can. Uh, we go we, we go off the grid when we have to. And like today, we were into genealogical records by the hour and all that. We're not afraid to do really good, thorough research because that's what we should do here in the attic. We're talking about stories that we hope will be, at the very least, interesting for everyone who's who's joining in the conversation with us and then informative, too. Yeah. And then hopefully you'll learn something that you didn't know before you turned on and watched this podcast. I would love to hear from everybody. Is it called crowdsourcing? We're trying to get ideas, but I would love to know what anybody who's watching thinks about both of these cases, especially the Casey case, uh, that Casey Hathaway case at the beginning there from 2019, you know, what do you think? 
I mean, the boy said it was a bear that was his friend out there in the woods that stayed with him for most of that time. Was it a bear? Or was it that theory of the Bigfoot creature? Or do you think it was possibly a uh, just a foiled kidnapping plot or an abduction plot? I mean, I'd be, I'd be interested in hearing what everyone's thinking about that. And also, if anyone has any ideas about this, yes, it's an older case, 1938, but it's still a human interest story. These were human beings. This was, you know, a family, a family that was... Uh, devastated by the loss of their youngest child, four-year-old Alfred. So I'd like to know what anyone thinks about this case, too, if they have any ideas or anything that's popping into their head as they've been listening to us going over the basics, the basic storyline, the basic information that we've been able to gather, uh, the basic information we got from many, many newspaper articles that we reviewed. Um, We do know, I want to say one last thing about this. I was just thinking, because, you know, Uncle Mark, I'm always thinking about stuff's always popping in my head, but I do remember one of the articles that I read was actually uh, published in a a newspaper in Nebraska. And what was interesting was the reporter who wrote this article, he was in the Rocky Mountain National Park when this all happened. Him and his wife were on vacation. So when they returned to Nebraska and he informed his editor, boom, he got that assignment. Like, yes, write an article about this this whole incident, you know, because this is firsthand. You were right there. And he did go there to talk to searchers and to the rangers and find out whatever information he can, he could find. And I know that at one point in his article, he stressed from his own firsthand observations, these searchers, once just, they, when they had that 100, 200 searchers out there at a time, they weren't just running around willy-nilly, like going over here, going over there. He said this was very organized. That ranger, Mumal, that was in charge, he was really running this in almost a military fashion. So you would have three or four men abreast, you know, walking in a, in a line, making sure they weren't missing anything as he set them up in these little groups and squads. So it was not uh, a haphazard investigation or search. This was, I, I enjoyed reading that in the man's article. It was a very, very organized search and very carefully carried out. So at least we know it was taken very seriously. And as we've said, many newspapers all across the country actually were reporting on this case and were publishing that little boy's photograph. I think that's why this got so much publicity. It was such a young boy. And when they published that picture, you know, it, it definitely was pulling at the heartstrings, I'm sure, of many, many adults who were reading this story. So that's why it was covered uh, so extensively in America when it, when it first happened and it was first unraveling. Uh, the American people were certainly aware of this in, in uh, most of the states in the country from all the archival material that we saw. So we do want to hear from you. I'd like to know what you're thinking because we're trying to go over these theories and come up to our own conclusions. And this one, my head, my heart just keep pulling me back and yeah. forth. I just, part of me keeps saying, I think he did drown and, you know, in the end. And then the other part saying like, there were a lot of kidnappings, and I don't know. It, it, something could have happened. Put that fake ransom note aside. Like I said, it could have been somebody that was looking for a child that had lost a child and could not replace the child themselves. And circumstances happen, and they find this boy wandering, this little blonde-haired four-year-old boy, and, oh, come along with us, son. We'll help you. And then they end up taking him home. You know. So I don't know. It's, it's a shame. It's a real mystery. Yeah, I don't think that's a bad um, thought he had there, actually. Um, and I, I, I also agree that it's, it's definitely hard to come to even some sort of conclusion to either of these cases, really, to as what happened to these, these young boys. And like Mark was saying, uh, we always try and, and get the most information we can. And especially with these two cases, we try and do as much research and get as much of the information as possible. And, relay that stuff to you guys and we do encourage you to do your own research and if you find anything else in this case we would definitely definitely 
uh, love to hear from from any of you. And with that being said, I think we're going to wrap up today's episode. that pretty much wraps it up. Yeah, we've done the best we could, and we hope you did enjoy this episode, this podcast that we did on these two cases of missing children. Uh, We look forward to seeing you next time here in Uncle Mark's Attic. Zach and I can't wait to welcome you back in when we'll be doing some other topics, and we have a whole lot of different topics planned for you in future uh, podcasts that we'll be doing. So thank you for joining in our conversation today, and now Zach will talk about our mascot. So... As many of you may know from the first couple episodes, this is our mascot. He still does not have a name yet. We have pre-recorded all of these, so we're hoping by episode, this should be, what, five, including the intro, that he has a name or we have a certain amount of people voting for a name. Um, Yeah, and if you don't know who this is, this is our mascot. (laughs) Comment a name, you know what I mean? And maybe we'll do a giveaway of a look-alike of our mascot and you can also enjoy his lovely presence in your home just like we do here in our (laughs) podcast studio yes that's something i'm sure everybody wants to have in their bedroom (laughs) greeting them every morning when they wake up (laughs) so (laughs) with that being said um we would always love to hear from you guys feedback constructive criticism everything under the sun you know what i mean conversation anything Mm -hmm. um the best way to help us out right now and to keep us spreading our information, you know what I mean, our, our podcast. Sharing our conversations. Yes. Yeah, it's what um, these are. Our, the best way would be to, if you're listening on Spotify, mm-hmm. just, you know what I mean, follow the Spotify. I don't really use Spotify that much. Follow our podcast. Leave a like if that's a thing on here. Um, for YouTube, <laughs> like, comment. You know what I mean? Please stay engaged with us. I think that is something that we stress and we want to encourage you to reach out to us um, because we want it to be a stress-free zone for everybody. You know what I mean? We want it to just be a conversation, not an argument. Um, And share this with your friends if you think it is something that uh, your friends would enjoy as well. Um, We would love to have anybody and everybody because everybody is welcome in Uncle Mark's Attic. And with that being said, we thank you guys for listening. And we hope to see you next time on Uncle Mark's Attic. That's right. Thank you. See you soon.